Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Hi, this is Jerry Boyer. Welcome to this edition of Meeting of Minds. My guest today is Jonathan Barry. Jonathan's the managing partner of the highly prestigious uh, D.C. law firm uh, and public affairs firm Boyden Gray. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Jerry, thanks so much for having me. I, uh, I, I watched um, your testimony before Congress recently, uh, the uh, committee that was um, looking specifically at the question of ESG and even more specifically at the um, issue of proxy, the proxy process and proxy voting. And I just thought it was just a wonderful introduction to an area that's really obscure for so many people, but is incredibly important in driving the politicization of corporations that we see now and are concerned about. And I just think one person in a thousand who's concerned about the direction of corporations understands the mechanism and the system that's pointing the corporations in that wrong direction. So if you could just kind of give us that beginner's level intro to the proxy process um, that you gave for Congress and kind of include us in it, and then we can kind of go on and talk about some of the more advanced topics and then how to improve things. Absolutely. So uh, our are public companies in America? Those are they're publicly traded on stock exchanges. They uh, they 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 issue stock. Stockholders uh, own that. Um, uh, usually, with the um, ownership of a certain amount of stock, and sometimes it can be shockingly little—just two thousand dollars relative to multi 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 billion dollars in the value of the overall company. A a shareholder can propose. Uh, some kind of resolution about uh, something that the company ought to do or ought to take a stand on. Um, and this is increasingly one of the favored vehicles by which the the, the political left, ESG activists, uh, will use um, to try to pressure corporate behavior uh, away from the core focus of excellence in the uh, in the in the creation and provision of goods and services that they do, um, and and drive that more towards a a narrower political agenda. Um, this is um, you know common common areas, common uh, proposal topics are going to be on on climate change. Um, they may be on diversity. Uh, they may be on LGBT issues um, or um, or abortion. Uh, has gotten uh, gotten some some greater popularity uh, as a proposal topic after um, after Dobbs uh, restored the ability of states to protect human life. Um, uh, so they uh, uh, they'll they'll introduce these proposals, um, and after sometimes after some uh, review from the Securities and Exchange Commission, the federal regulator, um, they'll get onto the shareholder ballot. Um, uh, kind of like if you're in a state that has direct democracy, you may be voting on ballot initiatives 
um, for for one thing or another, like initiative and referendum, but for corporations, yeah. yes, yeah, that's that that that's right. right. Um, uh, and um, what what happens once once a proposal gets on the ballot um, uh, many days in advance of the actual vote, um, that's when uh, the big uh, the big financial players um, tend to really activate. Um, and 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 have push things um, uh, push some of these proposals across the finish line. So this is this is where um, big asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street or the proxy advisors um, as well can really swing a lot of votes in favor of uh, one or other of these these sometimes very political proposals. I see. So it, it, it it's an interesting point that you made uh, sort of toward the beginning. Um, it doesn't take a lot to do this. So you think no. about Apple Corporation has a market cap of about $3 trillion. If you've owned $2,000 worth of Apple for three years, which I'm kind of like trying to do the decimal points in my head here. Forgive me if I've gotten them wrong. That's less than a billionth of the value of the company. So it it is um, two-thirds of a billionth. <laughs> Okay. Mm-hmm. of the value of the company, you have the ability to command the attention of the entire board of directors, upper management, and all other shareholders attending the meeting, including shareholders who might own billions of dollars you know, worth of this corporation. You can, in essence, with your $2,000, you can get your slice of the stage to yes. make your speech that Apple should censor conservative content more, uh, for example, or Apple should track people who are talking about guns, even if they're doing it legally, um, or whatever is your social issue, or Apple should have this quota for you know for race uh, at the board level, et cetera. Uh, in essence, you're kind of like grabbing the microphone with an infinitesimally small amount of of shareholder capital. Um, I mean, it's almost like a rent seeking kind of thing. And you start to steer the conversation in your direction, uh, even though you're, you're not even close to them. There none of these are even close to these cutoffs for how much you have to own or are even close to materiality for any company, really, frankly, other than a penny stock company. Mm -hmm. And yet you can steer the conversation. You can grab the conversation and steer it. And yeah, I, I think the analogy, Jerry is with, you know, we don't we have a whole in our in our federal government, we have this whole system by which people vote on representatives and those representatives in turn deliberate about, OK, what's the political agenda going to be like? There is a real there's a real critical mass that needs to happen before any, you know, any bill, any proposal for what our federal government ought to do um, is going to get consideration. Um, uh, you know, the equivalent would be, I, I guess, if. Um, if any if any resident um, in a in the country was able to introduce a bill into Congress uh, or, or something like that, that's like that's not how we're set up um, as a as a as a republic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it's an odd uh, uh, disjoint um, with our with how public corporations and give a speech. Uh, so, so imagine someone yeah. just kind of rushing into Congress and rushing forward. I want to give a speech. I'm introducing a bill. Um, you know, say at Starbucks, I don't think there should be, I don't think you should sell milk anymore. 
Yes, that basically was a proposal. It was change your pricing to subsidize oat milk so people won't buy milk. So I don't know. It seems to me like a coffee company ought to have dairy products in the mix. Um, You know, uh, but I think so. One would think it's like coffee, but no cream. Cream's bad. Uh, That was a PETA. People for the ethical Mm -hmm, treatment. mm -hmm. So you, you rush into Congress. And you grab the microphone and, and someone calls for the sergeant of arms. And instead, the Securities Exchange Commission comes in and says, no, 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 no. You know, they give them their three minutes. You know? um, yeah. And that's what's happened for something like 30 or 40 years. People at the fringe of American politics have like figured out that they can game the system this way um, and command attention with uh, with immaterial amounts of, of stock. And I think under some of the new rules, it's even easier now. Uh, and maybe that's something you can talk about under Biden administration new rules. Um, it's considerably easier to get political proposals on these ballots rather than things that are directly relevant to business. Yeah, that's that. That's right. Um, uh, you have now um, uh, this this administration has put uh, new guidance in place um, saying that if a proposal raises a significant social policy question um uh the 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 sec is not going to is never going to come in in essence and block that proposal from get uh, disapprove that proposal from getting on the ballot even even if like it still relates to the ordinary business operations of the of the company um and the real like the uh, you know the real problem, Jerry. And we, we've we've argued this in in litigation. We're um, we're, we're leading, and you're, I know you're familiar with this too. Um, is that um, it's the S? It's like it's it's unelected SEC bureaucrats who are deciding what is what counts as significant social policy. And and wouldn't you know it? There's a there's maybe a discernible political bias uh, to the way they decide this. Uh, yes, apparently they think some things are uh, are you know, uh, are, are significant social policies and other things aren't. Like, for instance, when conservatives are concerned about uh, politics in the boardroom and the effect on the brand, um, you know, I, I was involved with some proposals that were knocked down by the SEC um, on these topics. And yes. yet animal welfare, again, it's just, I, I bring it up because it's just such a silly example, you know, cream in the coffee. Uh, you can't have cream in the coffee because it's bad for the animals. That's that's a significant social policy, uh, a significant uh, social interest. So, I mean, they obviously have their biases. Um, it, it's it's so bad. It, it, we have the the central comparison in in, in our live lawsuit in the the uh, federal appellate court in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, is comparing a proposal that got in uh, put forward by a uh, a left wing proposal proponent on. Um, uh, sexual orientation and viewpoint, excuse me, sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. Right. The SEC staff said, okay, this is uh, a significant social question. And so uh, we're not going to let the company keep it off the ballot. It's got to go on the shareholder ballot. But uh, when, um, when, when our client, the National Center for Public Policy Research, submitted a proposal on that was verbatim identical, except they swapped in viewpoint and ideology for uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, the SEC said, no, no, that's that's not a significant social policy. Um, this despite the fact that the question of cancel culture and people suffering 
viewpoint discrimination in the workplace, like pressure on their jobs and their livelihoods uh, for their political views, uh, for their for their worldviews. That's uh, that's that's a hot topic, Jerry. <laughs> I yes. don't know. I don't know what world that's where that's not significant. <laughs> well, but but see, that's a very interesting point. What world? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember having a conversation with somebody from one of the proxy advisory services. I won't say who because it's it's off the record. So it's just speaking mm-hmm. for the class. Where the issue was the taking down of content from a social media provider, um, and a conservative proponent wanted the company to come forward and say these are times when we've taken down content. Uh, in in response to um, conversations with the government, and the the rationale against the proposal um, was that it wasn't a matter of significant public controversy or not a matter of reputational risk. And my question was, really, you you don't know anybody who gripes about YouTube demonetizing conservatives, right? Because I, I know I see it all the time. So in conservative world, we're really concerned about this. So I, I, I think in good faith, someone could say, oh, it's not really a, a significant concern because they don't, it's the Pauline Kael um, standard. Oh, I was, you got to, you got Sorry. to it first. I was totally going to quote her. <laughs> all right, go ahead. I mean, I, I set you up. Who is Pauline so Kael, Jonathan? So she was, I want to say she's the movie critic for Time Magazine. Washington I Post. Say, Washington Post. Oh, um, and she said something to the effect of, like, how did Richard Nixon win? Uh, no one I know voted for him. <laughs> uh, and just like, yeah, whoa, I don't know what to tell you. So nobody they, they knew, you know, understood that conservatives were definitely feeling like there was a differential um, in treatment when it comes to uh, edgy content. Um, and um, so you just want to soapbox this for a moment. All the more reason for conservatives to be talking into this system. Um, so, you know, yes, I mean, yes, SEC is biased. Yes. There are all these structural problems, but on the other hand, we can befriend, we can have conversations. We can say, by the way, here's a viral video from Dennis Prager, who is talking about how he was demonetized and the effect that it had on his livelihood and a lot of conservative, and he is a nationally syndicated talk show host and he's yes. talked about this a lot. So it, it, it definitely is an issue in some circles just to kind of maybe you don't know any people like that i understand i um uh, you're you're in rockville or whatever that, that but but let me tell you you know outside these are things people are talking about and then they can decide to take them into account so so in this case national center basically had exactly the same language except viewpoint diversity rather than gender identity diversity and that's right one was knocked down and the other isn't and you've got a lawsuit on that right now Yes, that's that's right. So we um, we filed suit um, against the SEC uh, on their on their biased uh, viewpoint discrimination uh, against our uh, against our client on that, um, and they're just really their their whole their larger pattern um, of of viewpoint discrimination um, against uh, against shareholder proposals that don't meet with the SEC staff's uh, political proclivities. It seems. Uh, that is uh, that's in front of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals right now in, uh, in in the South. Got it. So this could end up trimming back the SEC's power in very meaningful ways. I mean, you, I think you make a very very strong case in, in your testimony, um, both verbal and written, that it was never the intention 
of the framers of American corporate law to give this power to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's right. Um, we, we we argue that there is I think I think it's just true that um, there is a lot of a lot of evidence that when uh, when the federal government gets into the business of securities regulation in a big way in the 30s, they were really trying to ensure um, accuracy in the disclosures and the information that was going to be circulated about securities, but it wasn't trying to displace uh, the role of the states in setting up uh, corporate law, in setting up those relationships between uh, between shareholders and corporate directors and officers, what those responsibilities uh, look like. There was supposed to be a lot of space for experimentation uh, there, and in some ways there still is. But here, um, the SEC for quite some time now has basically stepped in and said, uh, we are going to decide um, uh, when uh, a shareholder proposal gets on the ballot or doesn't get on the ballot. That would be true even if they weren't biased, right? That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Is it, that, is a, that is a structural issue um, that doesn't, right, it, it, that, that you, can, you can make distinct from the, um, from the viewpoint um, bias. So in some sense, there's two problems. One is they seem to have given themselves an authority which no legislative body has given them. Um, and the other is they seem to be using it in a way which is itself discriminatory as to viewpoint. Uh, so they're not even using their usurped authority. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, one might almost look the other way and say, well, they're doing okay, even though this isn't their job, but they're not. They don't seem to be doing okay. Although, are they doing a little better? I, I, I wonder if lawsuits like yours or even the possibility of lawsuits like yours have gotten their attention. There were a few proposals that got through last year, some of which yes. we were involved with, which mm-hmm. it kind of surprised me a little bit, given the history of bias. And I wonder if they're they're kind of like on best behavior a bit. <laughs> uh, you know, don't take away uh, this. You know, a lot of people depend on these. You know, we got a lot of jobs here, you know, here at the SEC where staff members are making these calls. So maybe they're trying to kind of duck under the radar screen and be more fair. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's you know I don't I don't know what's what's happening in this particular case. We've definitely seen it be the case that sometimes you have a an administrative agency that's getting over its skis. They're acting in a way they shouldn't be, um, and when they start to see a threat of uh, of real a real response, they may temp- even temporarily try to try to dial it down and just hope it hope things blow over so they can get back to the fun work of. Um, you know, just your viewpoint bias or what, or whatever it is. Right, right. So uh, the idea here is that if the law were being followed properly, this would almost certainly go back to the states where shareholders would not be silenced. Um, states would very likely have accommodations uh, for shareholders, but there would be standards of materiality likely or relevance to you know, the proper conduct of business. In other words, you, you, they, you know, I, I'm not sure a Delaware would say, sure, you're a pro-abortion activist and you can find some strained rationale that somehow this is a business problem to do business in these states because uh, women will have to, I guess they have to leave the cubicle and go home, uh, you know, to have babies. 
even though these states are the states where population is growing, not shrinking for the most part, and people are fleeing from New York, for example, to go to these states that you think there's going to be a dearth of. I mean, the, 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 the argument is ludicrous, but you found some strained rationale. I can't imagine that a kind of a business friendly state like Delaware is going to say, sure, bring it all. If it's a broad, if it's a social concern, then, yeah, you can do your op ed on company time and command the attention of all the other shareholders uh, if you own two thirds of a billionth of the company. Uh, so but I, I don't think it would be a complete shutout for the most case. I think, I, you know, I think that there probably is some intent in the law to have what's that phrase shareholder suffrage, that shareholders should be heard, but they should be heard when they're relevant. <laughs> uh, yeah, see, there's see what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. I do. And and there's um, a lot of the state law, um, state law in this, this space has been, yeah, it, it, it's formed or not formed under the shadow of the SEC asserting authority here for, for a very long time. But the, the fact remains that uh, in a, I, I think it's fair to say, generally speaking, that states will um, authorize, state corporate law will authorize a shareholder proposal when it's when it's a, a proper subject um, under under state law for the uh, for the business of the of the annual meeting of the corporation, um, and then let's let's also not forget that really the um, in in many ways the the core right suffrage right that a shareholder typically enjoys under state law is the the election or, or deposition of of directors. Like think of think in terms of of like Republican democracy, of indirect um, democracy, um, just as you know, we we have all almost all policymaking except for ballot initiatives and the like um, happens this way throughout the United States, both the federal and state and most local levels. Right. Yeah. Corporations are basically a parliamentary system, right? You elect up the board is essentially equivalent to a legislative body, and then they choose a prime minister. <laughs> I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. probably more like that than it is the uh, American system. Um, but um, yeah, you don't have a separate. You don't. You, there's not a. There's not a an electorate who's separately electing the the chief executive. Right. right. And I also thought about this after reading your um, uh, your testimony. Before the vote for the board, there is one extremely important vote, which is the vote with your dollar to invest in the company. Mm-hmm. In other words, your main vote for or against a company is to invest in it or not. Um, so if you're if you're invested in a company in a material way, rather than you buy twenty five hundred dollars worth so that it probably won't dip below two thousand and then you hold it for three years so you can do an activist routine. So, I mean, so people who buy like or they buy one share so they can go to the annual meeting. Because, by the way, that's part of it. We can be one share. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And then there you are at the microphone screaming about space lasers or whatever you want, you know, um, you know, the the, uh, the the main thing that the main way you express confidence in a company and its management is to invest in it. And there should be a certain amount of confidence in it. Otherwise, why are you investing in the company unless you're just a pure act, political activist, as opposed to there's something else. There are shareholder activists who don't have confidence in the company, they buy with the intent to get enough shares to kick management out. Um, and that's a different right. thing entirely. But that there's still skin in the game in some sense, as opposed to political activists who don't really have skin in the game. Yes. Yeah, that's that's right. Now, there's a big 
um, there's a there's a big difference. There. They have voice in the game, but not skin in the game. I guess is the okay. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I that um, I wanted to ask you about, I think this is the last thing we'll ask about um, for this conversation. Although I think we might have you back in the near future to talk about another important issue that's brewing. But uh, we recently had um, a, a ruling from the Supreme Court of the United States really dealing with two cases at the same time about higher education. Harvard is the more high profile of the two institutions, which in essence was a pretty strong rebuff to the idea of um, quotas based on race, uh, which seemed to you know, be de facto instances of reverse discrimination. In the in the case of Harvard, I think it's essentially discrimination against Asian students who are underrepresented um, as people who can get into colleges relative, say, to their SAT scores, GPAs, etc. Um, now, that doesn't automatically apply to public corporations, but there 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 is a kind of tendency for these things to kind of move that way. So can you talk a little bit, little bit about that ruling and how it might end up affecting um, private businesses? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, so the, this, the Supreme court said that uh, you've got to have, there's, it's, it's an, it's exceedingly rare under the constitution and our, our laws more generally that, it is appropriate for for government actors to take to take people's race into account and in lots of occasions it's also um it's also going to be inappropriate for um uh for for private actors to do that and so this this case uh, these cases uh, covered both public and private you had university of north carolina which is a state university of course and harvard which while private is subject to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which forbids race discrimination by recipients of federal financial assistance. And Harvard gets plenty of federal financial assistance, um, including but not limited to its students' eligibility for uh, for subsidized student loans uh, and the like. Um, so the, the court really, really rather thoroughly um, unpacks the lack of uh, the, the the impropriety of invoking the educational benefits of diversity um, as of racial kind of superficial skin color identity politics diversity as a uh, as a basis for uh, for any kind of preferences on account of race. Um, the interesting thing here, Jerry, is that the um, I, I think a pretty good argument can be made that diversity um, on the basis of skin color, essentially, um, was already not a permitted reason to do uh, DEI or race preferential treatment in the workplace, in the, pri- in the, in the private sector uh, workplace. Um, so, but the, I think the court's, the court's ruling removes any, in, in my mind, any shadow of a doubt um, that um, wanting to have skin color diversity uh, is somehow somehow an appropriate thing for employers to to have in mind when hiring, firing, promoting, demoting Mm. um, people on the basis of race. I see. So how would that legally work its way out of public entities into private entities? Or how might it? Yeah. I mean, so there are 
even before this, but but certainly it's been growing in in recent months. There are uh, a variety of uh, of organizations, I think both both private law firms and and not for profit organizations like uh, America First Legal Group that we co counsel with uh, on some projects uh, have um, filed uh, charges of discrimination by uh, by workers, uh, job applicants, or employees um, who've been who've been the victim of um, discrimination at the hands, I think, typically of some like DEI program. Um, uh, and it could be race, you know, race segregated trainings or race privileged promotion opportunities, all, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and I, I think what you would find when those uh, the, some of that stuff takes a little while to make its way through the, the pipeline with the EEOC uh, prior to litigation. But when that gets to litigation, um, uh, I, I think you're going to see a lot of language from the SFFA decision from the Supreme Court make its way into the the legal filings of the challengers um, who are going to take, you know, you could do something like take what the company has said, like, hey, we are giving these race preferences because we, we believe that diversity is our strength. And then compare that to what the Supreme Court has said about the impropriety of you know, the, the, like what, what the chief justice says about like the rate, way to get rid of race discrimination is to get rid of all of it. Um, hmm. I think that'll be very powerful. I see. So there's a certain philosophical rebuttal. The Supreme Court has a certain sway. People call this the regime effect. When it says that there shouldn't be any discrimination based on race in any way, it's hard for them to argue diversity is their strength. But it also might be that having defined this kind of discrimination in public entities as, is there a term of art, pernicious discrimination or? Invidious. Invidious, that's it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, if it's invidious discrimination, it seems to me that that strengthens the claim even outside public entities or directly publicly. Is that, is that the point? I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. And, and you have, um, you're going to have, the, the Supreme Court has sent a, has sent a very clear signal that I think will give a lot more people who have been who've been victimized, have been marginalized by these by the DEI regime, give them greater comfort in coming forward and knowing they've got a real chance of of having their cases heard. So that it okay. it it, it uh, there there's some there's some technical sense in which the the lay of the land has not changed. Um, like it was already quite favorable to um, challenges to DEI programs that are that embody race preferences. But uh, practically, I think this is a strong signal that um, the courts need to take this seriously. Yeah. And you, you know, this is, again, an argument that I've made with the ESG world and the proxy people, that if, if you say to a company, uh, we don't want you to, discrim to discriminate based on race, and the company says, oh, don't worry about it. We don't. Take our word for it. Um, no proxy service or ESG shop would say, oh, well, oh, thanks for telling us that you don't discriminate based on race. You're OK. Mm -hmm. But when a proposal is put forward that says we want you to talk about whether you reverse discriminate, the typical rebuttal is, well, they've already disclosed that they don't discriminate. So mm -hmm. take their word for it. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I mean, come on, they're business people. They know what they're doing. Uh, you know, uh, so so that that's really interesting. So is this a is this a situation where maybe floodgates are going to be opening, uh, or maybe not like right away? But it seems to me like this can have really big downstream implications. I, I think it's I, I think it's going to build, and I, I think it's going to build in part because more people there's more of a more of an infrastructure coming online um, to help people uh, deal with these kinds of cases. Like his, historically, a lot of people with uh, who, who might want to bring, uh, I guess, I guess, long story short, um, I think there's a lot more, a lot more interest in this space. And I think you'll see both people being willing to come forward um, and also a greater number and cadre of, of attorneys who are ready, willing, and able to, to help them with those. All right. Jonathan Barry, managing partner of Boyden Gray, um, a relatively new post. I note uh, with sadness um, the passing of your founder, uh, yes. uh, a, a a man of very great stature. Um, yes. In, uh, God rest his soul. God rest his soul indeed. Um, and all of ours when the time comes. But, yes. um, you know, he seems to have a successor uh, who is ready to um, play the role um, and to uh, c- continue that vision and, by God's grace, perhaps expand it. Anything else, um, Jonathan, you want to mention to us before we go? Um, I would just like to give people, um, give your listeners, Jerry, a note of encouragement that I think the the effort to educate corporate America that they should not be taking ordinary Americans for granted, as they so often are, I, I, I think that I think that season is coming to an end and it's coming to an end because a lot more people are willing to stand up and make their voices heard. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And I'm glad to be doing my small part um, to help advance that cause. They're attending meetings, they're starting to do proposals, and some of them are actually stepping up and becoming litigants, which is an yes. extremely powerful tool. But of course, people need to be willing to be litigants. Right. They, yes. it, it takes a little bit of courage, um, even if the risk is low. Nevertheless, just putting your name out there takes a little bit of courage. Um, but what are we going to do? Let our country continue to to sink into that cesspool? Or are we going to be able to tell future generations we stood up and like the dec- signers of the declaration, we put our names on the line and signed them, you know, in big letters for the for, <laughs> for George the third to see. That's um, right. All right, um, Jonathan Barry from Boyd and Gray. Uh, can we have you back a little, in a little while to talk about some of the other things you're working on? Would you be willing to come back? Absolutely, Jerry. Love to do it. I'm Jerry Boyer. This is Meeting of Minds podcast. Thanks for joining us. 